Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Ilana Levin, and this is a comics podcast, a comics podcast in which we discuss comics. Uh, I know that's very far out there thing to talk about in such a day and age. Um, really glad to folks joining us on the show and have an exciting guest who is a cartoonist herself and also a really brilliant critic whose work I've enjoyed reading many, many, many times. I'm joined by Sarah Horrocks. She is an Eisner-nominated comic artist and critic from Oklahoma. She has a BA in English from Tulane University in New Orleans. She has done cover work for various Image and Boom Studio projects, as well as comics for anthologies across a spectrum of publications and publishers, including the Eisner-nominated Twisted Romance from Image Comics. She has written critically for Fantagraphics, Comics Alliance, Study Group Magazine, and the Comics Journal. She hosted the Trash Twins podcast with fellow cartoonist Katie Skelly, which I definitely enjoyed, and you guys can still find it online. Um, her major comics work include Dysnomia, Hecate Snake Diaries, The Leopard, Goro, Euripides the Bacchae, and her latest work, Aorta. Most of these can be purchased either in print or digital editions through her website, mercurialblonde.squarespace.com. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, I um, I, I had on some of the creative team from Twisted Romance back when that comic came out, but there was like a lot of you guys, and there was no way to schedule to have everybody be on. So I'm I'm glad we're finally having the opportunity to to chat about your work. Yeah, I think that was the first time I listened to your podcast. Um, I think you had. Yeah. And Trungles and Alex, yeah. Yeah, and um, that was just like a project with so many interesting artists and voices who, um, you know, some of whom I'd been aware of, some of whom were new to me. And, and I had known your critical work before then, but I don't think I'd actually read your comics until that point. Um, and it was really cool because uh, you, you're someone whose work goes through a lot of different genres, but it's always very, like, sensationalistic and emotional and it was cool to see sort of your kind of horror-tinged stuff in a romance anthology. So you are a cartoonist, and by that I mean you draw and write, and you're doing all your own coloring, all of your own lettering, you're handling all the different elements of the piece of work that you're creating. Uh, what is it that draws you to doing comics uh, as a particular... Um, I don't know. That's a good question. It's a pretty crazy medium to choose to work in. Um, I, I know that like when I was really young, I wanted to be a writer and, um, for the longest time I was just thinking of like, you know, writing the great American novel and stuff like that. And, um, in my teens though, I read, uh, Alan Moore's The Watchmen and I was like, I mean, I had read um, comics kind of growing up, but that was the first time that I read something and I was like, whoa, I could totally like do something in this medium. And uh, so for the long, so like initially I was like, oh, I want to be a comics writer. So I spent a lot of time kind of just working on that angle, but um, I couldn't really get anyone to draw my scripts. I didn't have any money to sort of pay anyone. So I was like, I guess I need to learn how to like draw or well, initial, well, first, first I was like, um, I started doing these like collage comics where I would like cut up, uh, images from movies and like fashion magazines and, um, make comics out of them. 
and so I, my first like two or three years in comics were uh, making these like web comic cut up comics and um, just kind of in like Photoshop basically mm-hmm. and then I, I was getting to the point though where like to make like a single hand I had to like cut up like all these like different fingers and like is really involved and I was just like it'd be better if I just like learned how to draw a hand and this was like um, seven I think seven or eight years ago probably um, mm-hmm. so then I was like just kind of started learning how to draw so I could make comics and now I'm that's where I'm at now I think that's why my like coloring and um, sort of composition is probably far always been a little farther along than everything else because I had like two years where that was my main focus that's so fascinating I mean it's such a different approach to to learning how to make the art I I think that a lot of times people figure if they don't have realistic drawing skills um, and and ability to pull it up rapidly by a certain age then no matter what other kinds of visual storytelling skills you might have because you studied, you know, film or something like that, like you just can't possibly render it into a, a comic yourself. But your whole thing is like, no, screw that. I'm actually going to figure this out and do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's, um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure why I thought I could like learn how to draw like that, but I just kind of, I think I, I think because I had kind of gotten to that point with like writing and sort of mm-hmm. the process for developing as a writer, I just kind of like mapped that on to like learning how to draw and um, it, you know, it worked pretty well. I mean, I couldn't draw anything. Like I've shown people like the stuff that I was drawing when I first started. And it's like, I think people are always like shocked, but it is really, it is just a skill that you sort of develop. If you like, you just have to kind of like do it enough and then you get better at it. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm still constantly improving and trying to improve. It's interesting because I I sort of think of myself as being like a failed illustrator. You know, I was, um, I drew all the time when I was a kid and I won like every contest and I was constantly in art classes and all this. And then at some point in my youth, everybody else kind of caught up with me and I couldn't like get past that point. And it's just the thought of the physical rigor of having to re- develop the ability to do all those things just just really knocks me out when i think about it like it is so laborious yeah i mean i didn't i had um i drew up until like off and on when i was like really little up until like um i don't know like sort of middle elementary school i had a lot of bad experiences with um drawing as a kid where like I had like an art teacher that like made fun of the way I drew and like what uh, the fuck this should go to jail I am like and I had like a school guidance counselor that like threatened to like call my parents because I was drawing like these really like graphic like drawings in my sketchbook that like they found (sighs) and so I was just like from this from that point I was just like well I'm just gonna be a writer because like most people like don't read or I can get away with more (laughs) writing I had I had more I had more like positive like all my English teachers and everyone like totally loved my writing from the get-go so I had more sort of positive reinforcement there so you know I and I, I mean I think the advantage of doing it the way that I did it is that like I didn't really pick up like influences from 
uh, from childhood. So like when I was ready to start learning how to draw my influences, I kind of got to pick like as an adult. So like if I had started to draw, Mm. if I, if I had like drawn through my childhood and teens, my style would be much more influenced by like Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, like people like that. Whereas Mm -hmm. Um, starting when I did, I was more like influenced by Egon Schiele, Klimt, and um, like Guido Kripax and people like that. That has so much sense, though. Yeah, that really does. Like, uh, like what what goes into making the art that you make is so tied to like how your level of like maturity and art you're consuming when you're working on it. Frankly, you know, there, the, I also uh, was not really aware of um, the Italian artist comics artist who you cited in the beginning of the Bacchae as being a huge inspiration for you. But when I looked up his work, I was like, oh, I'd super see his style in your work as well. Um, and it's like, yeah, there's like no reality in which you as like a little kid would have been checking out, um, like probably wasn't even translated into English, you know, hmm. back then. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Help me out. Uh, Pazinza. Like his. Pazinza, um, yeah. His. Yeah. I think his book just came out, the collection of his work just came out in English like two, like two or three years ago for Zanardi. It was when I was working on um, Goro that that came out and it was um, something, it was kind of a revelation because like the way that he's able to draw in a lot of styles on the page, but it all fits because like he's the one drawing it, like really opened things up for me on Goro. So I think mm-hmm. Goro was more... Um, started out as me sort of processing my sort of influence of uh, Kyoko Kozaki and um, he seen his stuff at the time it sort of became um, a big influence on the way that book looks as well I think and now here's where I sound like a total uh, 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 like idiot but like Kyoko Kozaki who who is that she did um, Helter Skelter is her big book um she also did a book called Pink. Uh, I think they're oh, both I've from Vertical. Yeah, she's like really, really good. Like she's one of my favorites. Uh, she has a lot of it's like um, slice of life uh, Jose type stuff. Um, she was like her assistant was uh, Miyoko Ano. Um, so like her stuff is kind of like a raw punker version of like that style. Mm, okay. Yeah, I'm like just a total like American and British comic chauvinist who doesn't know their international stuff at all. Um, so I'm I'm really like very conscious of how that limits my ability to like understand and and, and analyze comics art. But I still like I, there's just so much work out there. It's hard to it's hard to to figure out like where to work it into the curriculum of things I already read. Um, but it was exciting to sort of have that entry point in the character design um, and like. And like, thanks. Just like, so like, I guess what I'm saying is, thank you for citing that reference because like, folks like me are just not gonna know. And um, I think it's really cool when creators do that. Yeah, it all came about because of um, I did a thing for the um, Island Anthology that was mm-hmm. like um, about her work, and um, instead of because I think originally when um, Brandon like pitched it to me, he just kind of wanted me to like write an article or on Kyoko Kozaki and then I decided that I wanted to do like a like I wanted to redraw her panels and stuff that I was talking about and then like put 
the sort of critical analysis in the work itself. And Mm -hmm. um, in the process of doing that, I kind of like really enjoyed the style and also thought it kind of mixed well with what I was doing. So I was like, um, let me see. And then I did like a short comic called uh, Goat Lord, which is like a five page mini comic that I put in uh, The Leopard. And um, that was sort of in that style as well. And um, so I was like kind of interested in doing a longer work in that style. And that was kind of the genesis of the sort of visual impulse of Goro with some other things. But like for the most part, that was like the thing that I was kind of working through um, visually the most. And Goro is like very much a, like a soap opera, like, rich people fighting freaking out at each other interfamilial drama like i i I actually don't watch succession but i'm gonna guess it's kind of like succession (laughs) um so it's like a it's a it's definitely like a really dramatic i turn everything on on uh, dialed to 11 kind of a story which actually is i think pretty you're you're a very dialed to 11 person in terms of the comics too so yeah well it's it's interesting because i'm like as a person i'm very like chill but like the stuff that i'm into is like the opposite of that so like Mm -hmm. um I, i i kind of explain even though i like work across a lot of different like genres like my main interest in comics is like the um, spaces of like heightened emotion I feel like comics are like at their best when like the characters are like in some sort of like heightened space and so they have like you know they're yelling something and they're crying they're like you know having some deep emotional a- experience um, I feel like that really conveys really well in comics like you think about like uh, like all those like Kirby and Ditko like panels of people of characters like with these like contorted agonized faces mm-hmm. and like how well that like translates yeah. um so whatever genre i'm working in is always kind of like geared towards that and um working in a kind of like soap opera story was like a very obvious w- way for me to do that like i was very influenced by um like 80s uh soap operas and like the sort of prime time like dallas and dynasty and some mm-hmm. and like telenovelas as well like mm. just stuff where like the plot is very like fast and there's all these like sort of trashy turns and like people are like saying very direct and mean things to each other um it's very very opposite to like the life that i was raised in and so i have uh i guess i've just sort of developed a interest in that because usually like for my families it was always very like um sort of passive aggressive and nobody would like say anything whereas like so i always like um fiction and stuff where characters are very direct and very like emotionally open Mm. yeah i i I, that that makes a lot of sense for for looking at your work i mean i'm trying to think how to describe like you know goro as like terms of the storyline i mean you you're 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 having a moment where this like super rich family um like is it like the transition of like who's who's like the leader of the family like he's i guess he's incapacitated on on you know and and, and uh you have all the, the the younger generation fighting for who's gonna 
who's going to lead it. And I feel like I can say, as someone who hasn't watched any Succession, but who has listened to a really good podcast about Succession, <laughs> that I think that people who are interested in Succession might want to consider this as a comics exploration of the genre, because it just seems like it's right there in that feeling. Yeah, I need to see Succession, because I, I, I didn't really know... I've, only, I've seen, like, trailers where it looks cool, but, like, I saw, like, people talking about, like, a blood cult or something for the newest season, and I was like, huh, maybe I should be watching this. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't have HBO right now, which, which listeners, is why we don't have any coverage of Watchmen, although there's lots <laughs> of reasons for that also. Um, but uh, it's sort of, like, I think thinking it, like, it's also supposed to be absurdist, you know, and funny, you know. Mm. I, I don't like rich people porn. It makes me just want to punch them. But if we <laughs> can, like, actually laugh, and then I think that that's an important piece of it. Um, the, the Basically, the work that I really connected with, actually, is the Bacchae. Um, I, I haven't read Euripides in a million years, but back in college, that was, like, that was work that I really enjoyed. And it was really fun to sort of just jump back into that story. Um how did how did the Bacchae come about for you as a as a work like to do your own take of the Bacchae basically um I just gotten in the mode of reading like a lot of like classics um I I was I think um it's like I was because like Ann Carson did a bunch of like really great translations of uh, a lot of like great stuff and I was kind of reading through like Seneca and Euripides and um Asaclides uh and yeah like who who can say I think it's (laughs) I thought it was Aeschylus but like who the fuck I don't they're all it's just like I don't know sorry yeah well yeah I was gonna so like um but when I uh read the Bacchae like I was just it was just so like vivid in my head of like Mm -hmm. being this very like uh queer uh transgressive like piece of art and uh I just kind of like had all these like images in my head that I sort of immediately wanted to translate into something so it was just kind of like um an immediate reaction to the material like there's like two Mm -hmm. two works that I wanted to adapt to and that was like that one or I wanted to do um Electra by um mm. our aforementioned uh, however you pronounce his name <laughs> Aeschylus yeah yes yeah but um the Bacchae has more like themes that I wanted to explore because so, like the there's like um two in terms of like trans stuff to adapt like the Bacchae and then um there's like a section in uh Byron's Don Juan that is uh has like mm. cross-dressing and all the stuff that it has like very like queer messaging that i thought was interesting so i may do that someday Ooh, i feel like there's a big audience for that i've actually not read don juan but like mm. i don't know a lot of people have and if they haven't we all feel, kind of feel like we should have probably so i i think we would that would be really really cool to see yeah yeah so yeah it's like just kind of stuff like that um so yeah that was kind of my it's kind of interesting to see like the differing responses to that adaption for because mm. it's the my Bacchae adaption because like um I debuted it at uh Thought Bubble in England and like it was very popular there like I had all these like um 
classics professors and people like that, like walking by my table and like freaking out about it. Ooh, and I love it. So like I got home and I was like, oh, I need to like, you know, print a bunch of copies of this because obviously it's people are going to really like it. But it's just not nearly as popular in America as it is like overseas. So I guess like America doesn't necessarily love the classics quite as much, except for America you, I guess. <laughs> America just isn't ready for Euripides, you know. Yeah. I, I, I honestly feel like Euripides is definitely the most modern feeling ancient art I've ever encountered. Um, and I, yeah, like it, the, the, this, this story is like such a queer story. And I, one of the things that I love about what you're doing is like, at least I, I read into it as like a lot of the dialogue between, um, generations of people sort of felt like, oh yeah, this feels like some of the conflicting, uh, this feels like some internal community arguments in like the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was like a deliberate thing, but for me, I was like, yeah, we're going to like talk about respectability politics right now, I guess. And like, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's just nuts how like old text that is. And like all that stuff is still there. Like people try to act like all this stuff is new and it's like, you can find like, cause like everyone's like thinks that like transgender stuff is like something that was invented on Tumblr like five years ago, <laughs> whereas like it's in like Euripides bef- like in BC, and I mean even mm-hmm. the Bible like has like passages like basically like railing against us because so it's like not like um, people can't say we haven't been here for forever, <laughs> even in like yeah. Western even in like Western culture like right. Which is t- sort of typical to try to act like it's like like every it's like every ten years, people try to like rediscover like trans people, and it's like mm-hmm. annoying. <laughs> yeah, it's really really oppressive and awful. I mean, but the, you know the thing that I love though is like so much of this pre-modern pre-Christian art though is like how it doesn't have the the same like hangups around these things. Like there are definitely socially constructed acceptable ways to transgress gender and others that are not, but it's still like built into the system. Like, Hey, everyone's going to go wear women's clothing at this particular holiday. Like this is a thing we do. Um, Oh wow. Like, you know, this character changes their gender and that's how we know that they're extra powerful. Like, this is not stuff I'm like pulling out of the air. Like this is in Greek texts. Well, even, even like something like Satyricon, which is like later in Rome, like the, like, it's almost drop coming from like a different world entirely, like in terms of like values and in terms of like how sort of gender works within society. And it's still, it's like, um, in some ways it's, it's regressive, but in other ways it's very progressive compared mm-hmm. to now. And, mm-hmm. um, it's I don't know. It's just very fascinating. I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you when you watch Fellini's adaptation of Satyricon, like how alien he's made it look. How it's like almost like a sci-fi movie. Um, I think that was also yeah. an influence in terms of like how I approached um, the Bacchae was like uh, Pasolini and Fellini's adaptions in terms of like how otherworldly they could seem at times. Um, I don't know. I'm real. I'm real excited to get to the like crazy stuff at the 
back half of the Buckeye though, because like I haven't really <laughs> gotten to draw like any the. I mean the the second the second issue of the Buckeye has a little bit of stuff, but like I I can't wait to get like to to the really good stuff. Yeah, that story is definitely becomes more explosive and body parts and gory and sensationalist uh, as it continues. It's not a spoiler if I'm telling you about something that happens <laughs> in a pre-modern story. Okay, kids. Um, so that'll be really interesting and exciting to see, I'm sure. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know. I just, I just really saw the argument between the generations of, like, felt like a lot of, like, young people deciding that they were going to police their elders about decadence. <laughs> yeah it's interesting because like the because pentheus is much more um conservative and regressive than yeah. his forebears to yeah. like his detriment and it's that kind of repression which destroys him and you have him in this crazy amazing muscle suit jacket yeah i felt like that like very much conveys like his sort of uh it's like it's 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 kind of like masculinity and that like toxic masculinity in like a visual form. I it's mean, like, it's an amazing design. It's this costume. like scared scared little man in like a big muscle costume. Yeah, yeah. Oof. Um. So when you're you're doing your own work and you're you're publishing it yourself, when it comes to pieces like this, like how do you decide how you're going to break things up into into stories like? chapters and like what kind of pace is you know achievable and you know realistic for you doing all of these things yourself um well with uh, the bakai it's pretty easy in terms of like um i've i'm pretty much just breaking it up into the 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 acts um and then like it's somewhat i guess somewhat limited in terms of the pages like there's like a certain sort of page count i want to fit it in between just because of like cost and also Mm -hmm. just kind of like it like fits better um but with like goro the chapters are all like um vary a lot in length so like the like last 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 volume of goro is like uh 60 pages so it's like a like a quarter of the book um whereas like some of the middle volumes of goro are very slim like 20 20 pages 22 pages um and it was just kind of like what what felt like a contained like chapter to put out um if it needed to be longer then it would be longer and if it needed to be shorter it'd be shorter um but what i'm trying to do with uh, the newer book that i'm working on uh, aorta is do uh, lar- longer chunks um so like the first aorta book is um i think 60 pages and i'm trying to kind of keep to that because i was like taking goro to conventions and stuff and having like eight cop eight copies of uh eight issues was very difficult <laughs> so i'm trying to have like f- maybe four or five issues that are like just very big um mm. The downside of that is like financially it's um not financially it's a little bit more perilous in terms of like when i was doing goro i was pretty much doing it like every month or every other month 
Um, and so I'd have a new book selling like in that time period, which kind of kept things consistent. Whereas, um, doing it the way that I'm doing it now, it's, there's a lot more time where I don't have like something out. Um, Mm. but the sales so far have been, um, strong enough to make up for that. So it hasn't been like an issue. The, um, it's super inspiring yeah. though like that you're just making your own art and like putting it out and doing all this stuff yourself and like that there's an audience that's like ready and interested and like really you know smart and like non-superhero focused not saying that those things are antithetical because obviously I don't think they are but like but you know you're doing comics that aren't in the dominant genre as it were and you're doing stuff that like you're just really doing it on your own and 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 that there's like a you know an audience and an appetite for it yeah well there's like a kind of it's kind of interesting because like I have like uh readers that I interact with who are like um don't they're like the way they like first came across me was like through like my critical writing and then like mm-hmm. they saw my comics and but they're coming from like a to, like a totally outside part of comics um that's not traditionally kind of serviced so it's like i don't know it's kind of interesting like i i feel like i'm i feel like there's a wider audience for my stuff than i've even like connected to so far and it's just like the baby steps to like connecting with them but it's just because like the traditional um means of like comics connecting to those people is is not good so so it's like um i don't know i'm trying to like kind of like work my way around comics to like get to those people because my stuff doesn't necessarily fit into um a lot of the sort of set category categories and sort of patterns like it's not necessarily yeah. like um an alter alt indie type work and it's not necessarily no. like if, if anything it's like kind of a that middle band that sometimes like image books fall into but it's not quite that either because it's got like this like european um and uh manga sensibility as well Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. It's just kind of like figuring out how to position my work within that. And, um, it's really, uh, when you do it yourself, it's, um, kind of cool. Cause it's like, you can actually like be in control of everything and you can kind of like see who's buying what and sort of have kind of a direct connection to your sales. Cause you're literally like stuffing the envelopes. Um, and it's, yeah, you just get to kind of keep more have what you sell than if I were working with like a small press or something. Mm. Yeah. I think a lot of the small press appeal is somebody else dealing with your mailing. And if you're not someone who's already known, you know, the promotion, but like you're already coming with a brand so that it would literally just be managing your mailing at that point. That would be the virtue. Yeah. That, I mean, the only real downside is like, when I'm done with something, um, like it's still probably, it's too expensive to like, just for me to just collect something on my own. So, Mm. um, I have been kind of looking, um, and pitching to publishers as far as like collecting, uh, Goro. And then, you know, if, if nothing comes of that, then I will just like kickstart it or something. Cause I do think that like having a collected 
um, version of that that people can just have like one thing to get will be really helpful and it also yeah. give me something so like I haven't really with the exception of like escape pod in New York there's and maybe like floating world to some extent um, I haven't really like put my comics in like shops that aggressively because it's like the selling at like wholesale and everything it's like I, I lose a little bit on sales um, to do that and so I'm like sort of reticent sometimes to like go down that path whereas if I like I had like uh, like one book it'd be easier to also just kind of to pitch to shops and kind of get into shops for that stuff so I don't know that's kind of the next stage that I'm like building to building toward um, but if nothing else like I'll have the um, aorta will be sort of much shorter in terms of like number of volumes but they'll be much longer so I think that that'll be uh, satisfying for people I hope yeah yeah I guess for me like I like when I can store stuff with my other comics well mm. so I always have had a hard time buying mini comics because like that doesn't it like breaks my like storage system so luckily your stuff isn't so <laughs> my it, stuff's it, very all, big exactly so there you go <laughs> Um, I, from a, from a create, like a, from a, a very like craft based thing, I just really want to talk to you about Zipatone. Mm-hmm. Um, Zipatone or Screen Tone, uh, I guess they were calling it Chart Pack, Letratrone. I don't freaking know. But whenever, when I was learning how to do comics, like in like a kid class in like the year 1989 or something, <laughs> like, they were all about bringing out this like transfer paper that you know you rub on the page and you use that to fill in different kinds of shadings and you know like comic strips like for the you know in the newspaper you know you use those a lot um like uh luke mcdonald over doing uh suicide squad you know in the 80s is like the king of it i love what he does and then there's a lot of folks in uh, manga who use it um, it just feels like people kind of forgot about Zipatone and, and you're doing your work digitally predominantly and you're like the queen of Zipatone. <laughs> well, yeah, they, um, yeah, I mean, I just do that stuff digitally cause it's cheaper, um, than trying to buy like all the sheets and it's a little bit faster. Um, but yeah, I just clip studio has some really good tones and you can like modify them pretty well. So, I mean, that's, yeah, just kind of, I like having the, um, it's like another layer of expression that I can have in my work. Um, I don't really use it necessarily in, as like a, like, restrained, like, shading thing as much as I use it as like a, like, um, another mark on the page or another, like, sort of expressionistic, like, shape, um, to sort of like amplify what I'm trying to like show or like balance out like the composition of the page um which is again that's uh, something that I got from uh, Kyoko Okazaki like if you see her work you'll kind of see a definite bridge between the two because she's um she was the first one I saw that really just kind of like didn't give a fuck about where she was putting that stuff <laughs> she just like it didn't have to be directly aligned on the character and it would just be like kind of like it has like this very like 
punk sensibility the way that she does it and i really like that i like that sort of freedom of like i'm gonna put this here because like fuck you basically (laughs) (laughs) and and so i i kind of um yeah because i'm i've always been really into like texture like um alberto breccia is a big influence he's a argentine um comics creator that is just now starting to get more of his work put into english but i've been reading his work for like 10 years or something his work's like extremely textural and Mm. you can even like even like my earlier work you can see like um i used to like ink with like razor blades and like i would like cut up my ink and all this stuff so i've always been like yeah i remember seeing some of those yeah i think uh i think for twisted romance i did a little bit of that type of thing uh the that anthology i did a little something closer to that style um but yeah i I always like kind of the textures of pages and um like the expressiveness of ink um it's something that's kind of gone out a little bit in terms of like american comics and because of like the way that coloring has changed and the coloring techniques so people to sort of compensate with modern coloring or not using as much ink as they used to to like ex- express like dimension and stuff um but i really i really miss that stuff i like like stuff that's like flat colors but like very expressive ink hmm. yeah do you feel like part of that is just like because you connect it with the aesthetics of comics that you like or is there like like a, is it like an or is it like uh, I mean, I know you're saying you're not using it because you are trying to have like a limited, a more limited like palette for th- those reasons. But um, I don't know. I'm always trying to sort of get a handle on why do I like the look of something. Mm. Um. Well, f- I don't know. Because for me, like that, um, a lot of the sort of shading and coloring techniques f- for like modern comics look very plasticky to me. Like you'll see like. Mm-hmm. Uh, light sourcing on like jeans that make them look like they're like sort of plastic as opposed to like denim Mm -hmm. and so i just feel like um i feel like ink uh like pen and ink is a lot more expressive um unless you're like going like full-on like painted comics or like um i mean there are some colorists out there who are more um textural um in like a really interesting way like um there's some stuff by uh like matt wilson sometimes has like weird textures and stuff but um for the most part like it's all kind of like done in such a samey way that it's just not that interesting to me yeah um i just feel like that like there's more sort of dimension and layers with like the ink like i i almost i feel like a lot of artists especially like older artists were operating at a, like a higher fidelity than like the sort of even like good colorists today are necessarily in terms of like the things that they can express on the page like there's just like the level of craft that like a lot of top level comics artists have had through the years and like even still today even still today can be like it's kind of the most amazing part of the industry to me 
Like mm-hmm. it's a it's it's something that's done like at a higher level than any other aspect. I think at times. Um. So I don't know. So much. So I've just always kind of been drawn to stuff that's more expressive on that end. But I do like. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are things in coloring that I do like, but it's just. Um, I'm more interested, when it comes to color. I think I'm more interested in terms of like palette choices and in yeah. terms of like contrast sometimes though i mean i do still like um like those kind of muddy vertigo comics even though they're <laughs> like because i i was kind of invoked so sometimes to like bash those but they they work for me on some level too uh yeah the like steve bichette like recoloring um of that like old alan moore stuff and it was like um the uh they've just been so sort of robbed of their dimensionality, even though it was like still like the same like marks on the page, but because of the uh, rendering techniques by the recolors, it had kind of like distracted from that enough that you kind of lose the individuality and character of that like style and that work. Yeah. There's a really good essay by Sarah Century about the problem with all of these recolored comics. Um. You know, and I just think that, like, the coloring used at the time is part of an aesthetic look that's specific to a time and place. And if you, like, take that away, it doesn't look period anymore. And it looking period is part of the art, you know? I, you know, I, 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 I make exception for, like, sometimes I'll be looking at Silver Age comics where they, I swear to you, like, you know, you have black characters whose skin is colored gray as opposed to brown. Mm-hmm. And if they want to figure out a way to have that not be the case uh, while still being, like, in the style appropriate, then, like, that's a different story. But, um, but like, trying to make everything have this weird new polish is just, it looks weird and it's misguided. Yeah, well, like some, someone said on Twitter about it, and I think they're right, is that the focus should be on restoration instead of recolorization. Mm-hmm. It's just that restoration obviously takes more time and money, whereas recolorization is cheap and fast. Um, yeah. But it's just, it's, it's such a shame because it just kind of goes to this thing where like comics are just not being treated in as like an art form that should be like you know archived and like maintained like in the same with the same like level that like film does you know well you know i remember you know we used to have those big well i didn't but a lot of people had those big marvel anthologies that had no color at all they were Mm -hmm. just like the telephone book of the stories and i can't imagine like a medium that takes itself seriously thinking that that was an okay way to release something. <laughs> That's like, how I got um, like the early uh, Claremont um, burn X-Men oh, yeah. stuff. So everyone did. Everyone our age did, <laughs> you know. And, you're, um, and I was like, well, why was this such a big deal? Because it didn't like hit me quite as hard, I guess, in black and white like that. And then I later saw it in like color, and I'm like, oh, this would have been like a lot different if I had seen it with all the colors involved. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, God, talking about Watchmen, one of the my one of my big things with Watchmen is like I think the color work on that. Although I've met a few people who don't like it, but like I think the color work on Watchmen is like one of the most important things in that comic and is some of the best color work ever. And like, I can't imagine thinking that you could just have that comic be done any other way and that it wouldn't matter. 
Yeah. Um, uh, John, like John Higgins is for me as important to that book as like Dave Gibbons and Alan Moore, like totally that, like he just, just, just nails, uh, Gibbons art. The, um, I actually read a comic by him called, uh, the, end, I think it's called like the end of the world or something. He did it with, uh, Jamie Delano. Oh, and wow. It, he's like a, it's like a really crazy painted comic and it's like really metal and insane and great. Um, hmm. definitely recommend it. He's, I, I had no idea that he had done that. He, he like did comics besides like coloring, but, um, hmm. he's, yeah, he's an incredible artist. I did not know that either. Um, well, I know that you're also a really big fan of like Bill Sienkiewicz, if, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. I did not have an opportunity to read the new, um, I guess he just released something with Marvel, but definitely an artist whose work I see an influence of on yours who also you know coming coming from X-Men land yeah as it were well uh like one of uh yeah he was definitely an early especially an early influence in terms of like um I think I was reading like stray toasters and my partner like like was like oh that's uh Klimt and that's uh Shile and sort of that was how I discovered um, Clempton Chile was actually through mm. Sienkiewicz and that was like a big, uh, obviously a big influence on my art style and the direction, especially my early art took, um, was trying to sort of make like Egon Chile comics. Um, yeah. Or Egon Shiel. But um, I know, yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. Um, but I, I think he's like a, definitely an artist that a, a lot of comics artists speak to because it's so illustrative and these characters and these people and these bodies and these poses are so compelling well and he's another one like um Pazenzo who like will flip through styles depending on like what's what he thinks is like the most impactful emotionally which mm. um was always been something that I related to in terms of comics like I don't necessarily um believe in sort of maintaining a certain consistency where I'm like if I if I want to draw like a panel this way or color something this way like I will because I feel like mm-hmm. it's like right for the moment and that's sort of like my overarching thing and um he's an artist that also works in that way um and so it's just like he's always been someone whose work I've related to a lot for me um Straight Toasters and Electra Assassin are like two like monster works of comics. We did a Trash Twins on Electra Assassin actually, and um, yeah, yeah, love that book. It's still every time I read it, like it gets better. <laughs> it's like one of those books <laughs> like Watchmen you can read thirty times. Yeah. So you were talking about how in your work, if there's a just different style that you want to access to be able to make a particular visual point, you just do it. Um, periodically, I see like there was like a Dragon Ball or I don't remember. I'm terrible. The, the, I see it in, um, there's a couple of pages in, um, Aorta where he cropped up and you're probably going to tell me actually, Ilana, it's a completely different manga character and that I'm crazy, but, um, no, no, no. Like, uh, yeah. One of the characters is based on, uh, the, trunks from dragon ball yes yes so talk to me about like 
that like what 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 is the dragon ball like bringing into the story there and 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 what does dragon ball like i just mm, i've just always really hated the art of dragon ball and so many people whose art i respect really like it and i'm still hoping someday somebody will help me understand (laughs) like the appeal um and um you're a visual artist and you recognize this. So hopefully you can help me understand these things because I have failed so many times. Uh, I mean, it, I wish yeah. that I could. Like for me, like that character was just like, I had the um, idea of the basic like character design in my head. And then like, I really liked the, um, I wanted a character that had kind of that high forehead that Toriyama's, some of Toriyama's characters have. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how the that's how the design ended up coming about. Like it's not uh, n- nothing like too complex. The um, mm-hmm. the I, I'm I've I've only sort of read like sm- sort of smatterings of Dragon Ball and Toriyama's work in general. I'm not like a huge 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 fan of his, but some of his stuff is really cool. Um, I think, like, the early first part of Dragon Ball, like, looks, like, amazing. Um, then there's, like, sort of later parts that I've looked at that aren't quite as impressive for me. But in general, like, um, I would say his stuff just has, like, a very, like, interesting sort of sense of humor and, like, uh, like, uh, it's very sort of kinetic, but I, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely not like um, a huge sort of Dragon Ball fan to like convert you or anything. Like, I still have I to you. like read a lot on that. Read a lot. No, of- and I don't. I don't even want to be converted to the actual virtues of the text. It's more just mm. like for me, the barrier was always just the art. I was like, I don't like the eyes that are vertical as opposed to horizontal, this bothers me. And like this dates back to childhood. This is not like Ilana making an adult driven aesthetic judgment. This was like Ilana is a kid watching cartoons and being like, I will not watch that cartoon. The eyes are done incorrectly. And like being a little fascist about it. Um, So, but you know, but it was a palette, a visual palette like you wanted to play with in there. Like um, I definitely think that his particular character in Aorta felt like super just like animated and like, I don't know, action driven and youthful, you know, from that association. So, mm. yeah, the, uh, well, I, I would say that character is sort of a mixture of Toriyama and then like, um, very sort of muscular sort of Baki, the grappler like stuff. Um, but yeah, that it's, uh, that character gets to do a whole lot more in the second issue. Um, but yeah, so I think in the uh, order you're drawing mechs, like yeah, that's yeah. crazy hard. Uh, yeah, uh, for me, I just kind of approach it more as like um, sort of lots of sharp edged like shapes and stuff. Like it's uh, for me, I was thinking more of like uh, like futurism and abstract expressionism and stuff like that. Like I'm real excited to like draw like very like big like fights and stuff like later in the comic with like you know all these like geometric like lasers going across in different directions with like you know all the shapes and motion going across like panels and pages and um people like screaming uh emotionally like you know through space and metal like uh um yeah 
just sort of like very interested in that part. Like for me, for me, my interest in mech comics or mechs in general is the idea of like um, people trying to connect emotionally, like through um, machines across the void of like nothingness. Um, and it's all, it's all kind of like, all, it's always about like sort of entering this sort of ecstatic state where they go beyond the borders of like their like body and sort of connect on like a soul level with like um, existence and like their, their place within the world. And I feel like this is kind of like a consistent like theme and thing and like the best, my favorite, the moments I relate most to and like the mech genre. And so like, that's the, that's sort of, the stuff that I'm most excited to explore and like deal with, um, which won't happen until right now in the comic. It's like, you have to like set up like sort of the sort of baseline story and everything. So all that stuff actually hits when it happens, but, right. um, I'm excited. That's the, that's my interest in the mech genre is that sort of emotional, ecstatic, um, apocalyptic state which is pretty consistent across like all my comics. I think all my comics mm-hmm. have some sort of apocalyptic thing to- that happens and like changes things at- right at the end. I think it's uh, probably comes from like watching too much Evangelion as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just kind of, I think it's, I think there's also like a basic like trans thing in that in terms of like coming out, in your because I came out like when I was like 22 23 and that's mm-hmm. such like a kind of apocalyptic thing unto itself like the sort of emo your sort of heightened emotional state like going into it and then like you know all the upheaval and like tension and everything like at the time and then like coming out of it like changed and um you're, you're still you but you have a better like place within the world um more sort of uh sort of alive within your existence and um so i mean i because i've thought because i've noticed that in all my work and i've kind of been trying to kind of figure out why it's there and that's my my best guess is that that's it's linked to that sort of thing but it could also just be Mm -hmm. like at a very religious upbringing and revelation was always like a very spooky book yeah wow well i mean i think that's a really great way to talk about the appeal of mechs um it's always not it's just never been my i always used to we used to joke on the show that like brett was into five robot fighting and wasn't into sword and sorcery and for us and for me it was vice versa or more even so sword and sandal he like will not even go to conan but i'm like i don't want to really care about robots punching each other but when when described in the terms that you used it's it feels a lot more impactful and um compelling so there's some good uh sword and sorcery mech like anime out there like escaflone and uh aura battler dumbbean are both um like sword and sorcery mech things inexplicably hmm. i mean just like you could have a mech doing almost anything really yeah well because like in escaflone they're almost like uh almost dragons in a, in a way that like people huh. are kind of like inside of and they're sort of biologically connected which is something that like comes up in aorta like the aorta machine um like connects to like the blood and that's sort of like 
wear that and like there's like a vampirism aspect of it well that's a great connection to the name of the series oh i want to ask you goro what's behind Mm. the name Uh, what is oh uh, it's uh sort of multi-tiered um one there's a there's a link in the book um sort of obliquely made to um there's this like japanese um film series from the 70s um called like outlaw assassin and the Mm -hmm. um assassin in that's name is goro and uh and so i have the character um named in the book after uh the a woman says that she, she he was like named after the um uh this friend that they had from japan this assassin friend that they had from japan so it's like sort of a nod to those films um it was that and also like i was getting in a mode where i decided i was just going to start naming uh my comics after mortal kombat characters <laughs> and, that's uh, a mortal kombat character do what yeah uh goro yeah. is uh this like four-armed like behemoth boss character oh that guy i could never play as him right yeah. okay see before i began reading the comic i thought goro was sort of like a reference to um like giallo mm. i was like thought it was a joke on that but then like this is not a giallo comic <laughs> yeah it's very it's not though though the there is crossover between like um the the leopard like familial dynamics and uh, goro's dynamics Mm, that makes sense too well mm-hmm. oh no i was i was just gonna say i think I, a lot of my comics end up having some sort of uh family and a, like a clustered space dynamic yeah i mean that's a good space to tell stories from so. yeah um well thank you for joining us on the show um i think like i have a good reading list i you gonna be at any cons soon or uh no i try to do i usually just do like one or two cons a year um and i haven't really decided on what i'm gonna do next year i just did um spx for the first time this year oh Um, back in my hometown yeah (laughs) i was i was kind of uh i didn't really know what to expect it was uh interesting like um I was kind of, for the longest time I had been kind of afraid of going to that show uh, just because like I had like a weird relationship to a lot of the people in that scene but it ended up being really good so um I still think uh, my favorite con is um uh I'm trying I'm wanting to say thought bubble but it's not thought bubble it's um what's the one in Toronto TCAF TCAF is my favorite one uh, Thought Bubble was my second favorite, um, mostly just because of like the people. But um, mm. TCAF is definitely my favorite con that I've been to so far. I love that con. Mm. Yeah, I have never been, and I will probably want to go at some point. It's just in New York, it's like so hard to convince myself that I should like go and spend money to go to another con in which I will certainly not be making any significant amount of money, even if I like sell a piece you know what i mean like as a as a, as a you know a comics writer as a uh, critic you know <sighs> yeah but that was definitely the really con good. 
that was definitely the con where I spent like the most amount of my like money on the floor because it's just like a it, it has the best balance of like European comics, Japanese comics, and like indie comics that I've ever been ever seen. Mm. And the, the year I went, they had uh, Inio Asano was a special guest. They always have like a really cool like manga guest, like Tayo Matsumoto was there before, and um, Junji Ito this oh. year or something. Yeah, um, wow. Yeah, they always they always have like some like because Chris Butcher runs it, so he has like good connections to all that stuff. And uh, yeah, it's uh, there's always some like amazing japanese um manga artists that they bring over that's like a once in a lifetime chance to actually see them and their work in person well i know donji ito had said that his wife actually does like all the shading and like zip tone work on his comics oh wow i don't think and i knew like, that yeah like it was in some it might have been in the some interview i think it was like in the back of like his cat comic book thing that i was given so given our earlier conversation i'm just sort of like yeah like you should probably have her on the credits of your comics then (laughs) i'm thinking since your wife is not an extension of you just a thought they have yeah it's very uh yeah japan has some issues to work through still when it comes to like gender and uh yeah (laughs) i mean so do we but we're each terrible in our own unique way yes that's true um, but I just was like struck by that. I was like, dude, she's your letterer. She's sorry. She's your, she's like your colorist. You should like put her in your credits for fuck's sake. Anyway. Um, well, cool. Um, so remind our guests again, uh, they should be following you obviously on Twitter where you are M E C U R I A L blonde, Mercurial blonde, a blonde who has a range of feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, uh, your website is mercurialblonde.squarespace.com. Uh, any other social media sites people should find you at? Uh, if they just go to my website that has like connections to everything, everything is pretty much at Mercurial Blonde. So I've managed to like corner that branding so far. It's like Instagram. I'm that's my Instagram as well. And, um, mostly I'm on Twitter and, uh, I have a Patreon which I've been doing, like, started doing, like, podcast episodes on about, like, ah. comics. And uh, today I actually put out an episode reading my favorite poems. So uh, we'll see how that's how it's going. Oh, that's really neat. Well, I know my listeners like listening to things. So <laughs> I hope they will also listen to yours. Uh, like, And I have definitely enjoyed listening to um, yeah, uh, Trash Twins. I was like, <gasps> women talking about Monera and Craypax, bring it. Um yeah we we both still get like people coming up to us at shows like talking about that and very people really loved it i mean it was just a kind of a thing where like if you see like our both of our output since then like we've just been like so busy with just comics it was just kind of a Mm -hmm. thing where like we either had to dedicate ourselves to being podcasters or make comics and we both wanted to make comics so yeah that's kind of just how that. that went Whereas I am a podcaster. And that's right, folks. We'll continue to be Graphic Policy Radio. We're on every podcast platform. Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, you name it. Uh, You can always reach out to me on Twitter at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. That's Elana underscore Brooklyn. Um, And uh, thanks for joining us. Like we always say on the show, keep it geeky.